0: Um, I'm one of the elders here. My name is Jonathan, um, and uh, my, it's my privilege to be reading God's Word with you. Our text for today is from Isaiah. Uh, no, it's not, actually. I tricked you. It's from <laughs> Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. Um, we continue, um, well, I guess. First, to talk about this passage, the details of how this profound news of, of the coming of Christ impacted this small family is what we are looking into today. Um, why is this private account of Christ's earthly family before His birth so important to our faith? And why are we given this interior snapshot of His mother and His earthly father? I think it really is because Christ's birth is set apart from all other births in the history of this world and the miracle that changes the trajectory of all that would believe in Him. So if you would join me, um, we will just uh, read the text for today. It is from Matthew chapter 1, verse, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ By the way, sorry, if you have your pew Bibles, you can turn to page 757, 757, and I'll read for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. If you are taking notes, our big idea for the text today is that Christ saves, he is with us always, and we are to trust and obey him. Christ saves, he is with us always, and we are to trust and obey him. If you remember from last week's sermon, Brian preached from chapter one, to, oh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, and he spoke of the genealogy of Christ that highlights God's acceptance of sinful, marginalized, and, and the unworthy. God includes them in the royal lineage from Abraham to David, and that culminates in Christ the Savior King. The genealogy with its three sets of 14 generations reminds us that the coming of Christ was not a spur-of-the-moment decision, but God's plan all along. Today, we take some time in this Advent season to zoom in on these specific events surrounding the birth of Christ. So we look to our first section, verses 18 to 21, Jesus saves. Our passage today gives us an account of how the birth of Christ took place. We are told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was found to be pregnant. Scripture makes it plain in before they came together, that this pregnancy happened at a specific time before Mary's marriage to Joseph could be consummated. Mary would have been four months pregnant at this point, having spent three months with Elizabeth, her relative. Even without ultrasound technology in those days, her baby bump must have been evident for all to see that she was carrying a child within her. And therein actually was the problem for Joseph. Purely through human deduction, if Mary was pregnant and he did not have sex with her, then somebody else had to have. Which at this point, to him, must have meant that she was sexually unfaithful and committed adultery outside of their betrothal. The relational tension and distrust must have been palpable in those moments. Now, betrothal in those days was quite different from our present-day engagement practices, and it meant that they were legally already pledged to be married. It typically involved prenuptial agreements before witnesses, and so though the couple had not yet officially married, they would have already entered into a legally binding contract that could only be broken through divorce. Adultery in the context of betrothal was breaking that legal pledge. And so with the discovery of Mary's pregnancy, the context of their legal pledge in marriage, Joseph contemplates doing what Scripture says is the just thing by divorcing her so, that as, so as not to pursue an adulterer. But he is also described as contemplating the compassionate thing to quietly divorce her, not wanting to publicly shame her and bring upon her a lifetime of ruin and potentially even death. You can sense the internal conflict in this man's mind. This experience goes against everything he knows regarding who he's learned about Mary. But he cannot deny and stay silent about the obvious reality, the reality of a child that he did not biologically father. Unlike Joseph, the readers, we, as we pick up Scripture, And the readers of of Matthew in that day are told the source of this child is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Besides the readers of Matthew, the other person that knew of this was Mary herself. And we learn of this in Luke's account of the Gospel that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary responds in doubt, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High he will overshadow you. But God, in his gracious mercy, he does not leave Joseph in his turmoil, as Joseph was considering these things, as he was thinking deeply, rolling in bed, trying to find out a solution, as he was considering these things, before he could have have the time to come to act on his conclusions, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The angel addresses him by his own name, God knows him, and he reminds the carpenter of his lineage. He knows where he comes from. He reminds him that he is the son of David, coming from the royal lineage of kings of God's people. And he addresses his fears directly. He says, Fear not to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So our account today gives us a glimpse into a moment in time when God intervened in human history, unlike any other birth ever happened or ever to happen. With the order of events and information that were known and unknown to various parties, that could actually potentially break the marriage. Why jeopardize the incarnation of the Son of Heaven by destabilizing the earthly family in such a way? In fact, why even have the Christ come as an infant when God could have beamed him down as a grown man in the prime of his life, ready and equipped for ministry. Why come as an infant? God intervened in this way so that the Savior Christ might come as fully human and fully God. We read in Hebrews uh, 2 verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, referring to Christ so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As God is perfect and holy, he does not identify with our sins. He cannot possibly because he is pure. But Christ was made fully human in every respect so that he would experience trials Temptations of humanity, and yet be without sin. He was in all manner tempted like we are, yet was without sin. Christ grew up as an infant, constrained by human limitations, and trust me, I know all those limitations very well pooping, burping, not able to keep down the milk. Christ subjected himself to these human limitations, to feed at his mother's breast, to be reliant on her care and nurture. I just want to take a brief aside to mothers in our midst. To those of you struggling with the day-to-day care of an infant, if God would subject Christ, the Son of God, to be the Son of Mary to receive her humble and ordinary care, then that says how highly God thinks of the sanctity and dignity of motherhood. As you nurse and care for your child when the rest of the world is asleep, know that the Son of Heaven also was cared in this way by Mary. What you're doing matters and is valued by God. And when things get tough, know that the body of Christ is here to support and care for you. And likewise, to anyone in our congregation weary with the demands of life, be it work or parenting or caring for a dependent, continue to press in to growing in Christ, even in your weariness. Prioritize meeting with God's people, growing in your knowledge and love of Christ, who came as fully human to identify with our struggles. He overcame it all, and lived a sinless and holy life, obeying the whole law completely and perfectly and yet bore the weight and sin of the world upon His shoulders, suffering the punishment for human sin, to be completely crushed by the just wrath of God and separation from His presence. Because Christ is fully man, He can become our perfect substitute and die in our place. Only Christ is worthy to save us from our sins. Or you press on in knowing this God that is truly human, who came in flesh to save us from our sins. Well, friends, Christ also came as fully God. In last week's genealogy, the ongoing pattern of so-and-so the father of so-and-so that was broken when coming to Christ, as it states, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Our passage today goes through great pains to emphasize that Joseph's DNA had zero contribution to the person of Christ. He was born of the Holy Spirit, and our passage repeats this twice uh, with the many timestamps given so that we would not mistake this. He was born of the Holy Spirit. So just as He's fully human, Christ is also fully God. And that means that He can, can and He will accomplish the purposes for which He came. His suffering and his obedience were fully effective in all it aimed to achieve. When Christ was put to death, he could pay for the penalty of our sin and actually rise from the dead. In his divine nature, he bore the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcame death. He is fully God in that death itself could not hold him back. And now, he is raised to life at the Father's right hand, and he's advocating for us. Because Jesus is fully God, at the right hand of the Father, even now, he is accomplishing his purposes in our lives, though we might not be aware of it. For those in our congregation that are feeling downtrodden, maybe it has been costly for you to follow Christ. You have paid dearly for your allegiance to Him. Or you haven't seen much fruit in your life for some reason, for for some season, and you are doubting your faith. Maybe you are weary in the fight with sin. Know that Christ our Savior, fully God, he is mighty to save. In John six thirty nine, Christ declares in power, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, Christ will not lose any of his children if we put our faith in him. Hold fast to this promise of the God-man that has power to save and furthermore has the power to keep us as his children. When Satan tempts me to despair and he tells me of the guilt within, Upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, Christ is fully God, raised to the right hand of the Father and accomplishes everything God has entrusted to him. We can look to him for hope, who makes an end of all our sins. If you've repented and believed in him, take heart and know that you are secure. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, divinely born of the Virgin Mary, this is one of the core tenets in our statements of faith, God acted in human history. He intervened in Mary and Joseph's life so that Christ would be the perfect God-man to address our helplessness in sin. He is our worthy substitute that was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and in divine nature conquered death and raised now at the right hand of the Father. Christ only saves We look to the next section of our text today, that is, God is with us. We are looking at verses 22 to 23. Our writer, Matthew, takes a turn in these two verses, actually. He, he turns aside from his narrative, and he switches modes to give his readers um, his own commentary on Scripture, the phrase "all this took place" refers to what we just read—the uh, the interior struggles of, of Joseph and Mary in the preceding verses. And to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet in this specific text, refers to the account in Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. This is a recurring pattern um, of Matthew saying, "All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has has, has spoken." through the prophets, um, and he does this to connect the life of Christ with God's promises of old, affirming that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited, long-expected, promised-for Messiah that will come and deliver his people. Nothing about the life of Christ is an accident. As realistic as this small um, interior struggle of Joseph and Mary is, it is truly biblical realism of, of the struggle of uh, the God-man descending into human lives. Nothing about, but nothing about this life of Christ is an accident. Even as Christ is born, He is attesting to, the God, to God's faithfulness to His own word. God's word speaks out in power, and history unfolds in response. So, in our text, I'll just do a quick summary of Isaiah chapter 7, and then I'll read some of it for us. Isaiah chapter 7, in, 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 in Isaiah 7, God commands the prophet Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. This king who is shaken by the news of, news of an alliance between the nations of Syria and Israel who are going to besiege his city. Israel's, Isaiah's word is for Ahaz to be firm in faith amidst oppression and trust in the God who saves. But Ahaz, he rejects God's offer for a sign, and responds in pride and self-sufficiency. God himself, however, decides to give him a sign. He chooses to give him the sign of Judah's deliverance from the two oppressing nations of Syria and Israel. I'll read for us from chapter 7, verse 10 to 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you will weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will... "'Whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt "'and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. "'And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines "'and in the clefts of the rocks "'and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. "'In that day the Lord will shave with a razor "'that is hired beyond the river "'with the king of Assyria, "'the head and the hair of the feet, "'and it will sweep away the beard also. "'In that day,' A man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. The sign will be a boy, as we read in chapter 7, verse 14. The sign will be a boy called Emmanuel. And Judah's deliverance will be tied to the boy's developmental milestone. When he is able to discern and reject evil from the good, God says the two oppressors will face desolation and defeat. Indeed, in 732 and 722 BC, both Syria and Israel fell to the Assyrians. In Isaiah's prophecy saw its initial fulfillment in Ahaz's day. But Judah's false hope in the nation of Assyria will turn out to be more oppressive than the first two nations. I think the bulk of the text I read in the end spoke of gloom and a land that is ravaged, land that was once used to plant vines, now is in disarray and animals feed on it at random? Judah's false hope in the nation of Assyria turns out to be more oppressive than the first two. Ahaz's unbelief in God doomed the Davidic dynasty, and it lost its sovereignty under the Assyrian domination. Judah lost its independence, and now God must be the one to restore the throne of David. So at the end of our passage in in Isaiah, the big question is this, how will a son from David be on the throne when Judah is under such oppression? God's people looked to God alone for the messianic king who will come and bring salvation, a king that will establish perfect rule over his people and save them from their foes. Friends, Matthew is helping us to tie up the loose end of Isaiah's partial fulfillment. Isaiah's prophecy is partial fulfillment. He is he, he's helping his readers to connect that Jesus Christ, divinely conceived, with this divine mission to save sinners, is the final and the perfect. Fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy given all the way back in the days of Ahaz. Jesus will be that son from the line of David to be on the throne to rule over his people. This connection helps us as God's people now to comprehend this deep, deep yearning of God's people throughout the ages for a final and definite solution to their utter helplessness. Life stuck in, in sinful rejection of God is more dreadful than having the land ravaged by foreign invasion. To have so few remnants of your own people that just the curds from one cow and two sheep will be enough to stave off hunger. Life in sin is a life of hope wrongly anchored. A life in sin without God is far worse than to be betrayed by your ally. This is the life described in Isaiah 7. And all these generations of God's people that followed clung to God's promises, having witnessed glimpses of hope through the first partial fulfillment In the boy, Emmanuel, they longed for hope of true salvation, the final Emmanuel, God with us. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is here. Jesus Christ, divinely born with a divine mission to save, he is the final and complete fulfillment of the prophet's word. And the final answer to the deep, deep yearning of God's people for true salvation. For he is God himself with God's people, walking, talking, and eating with them. Christ came proclaiming with authority the message of repentance and faith in him to bring sinners back to God. Friends, if you are here with us this morning, you have heard about God's people yearning to be free of sin. And if you feel convicted of rejecting or ignoring God, or maybe you are aware of how you've done what He has prohibited, or you have left undone what He requires, know that Christ came to die for sinners like you and me. You are not alone today. The good news is that God did not withhold Himself from mankind, despite our rebellion, but gave His, his Son to be God with us. You, you can respond to Him in repentance and faith, and we would love to walk alongside you to unpack what all that means. If you want to find out more, please come and find me or any of the elders here today. Ahaz, Ahaz rejected God's sign, and he looked to the false hope of Assyria for deliverance. What is our Assyria today? Few will say we look to work to save us, but when push comes to shove, and we probe deeper to ask what we're truly trusting in, are not many of us tempted to put our trust in career? in the skills and the personal development that it brings, in the recognition and the acceptance that it garners, in its affordance of certain lifestyles, how will you respond if God were to take away your current job and give you another? Will you resent Him or will you seek to be faithful where He has put you? Friends, for Singaporeans, Comfort to us can be such an idol and it is a false god that cannot save. And if comfort is our idol, we have become our gods. Our convenience, our pleasure, our timelines, our comfort level, that is what we pursue. And we are the ones who have been blinded to think that these will actually save us. Dear church, Look to Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us, the true and final fulfillment of all our yearning for safety, for security, for lasting comfort. He has come, and all these are only truly ever found in Him. He is the Savior who has left His Father's side to come and live among sinful men. He is now ascended into heaven one day return, to one day return to remove sin once and for all, and we look forward to that day. He is with us still now through the Holy Spirit sent to be our helper. The Spirit now convicts us of our sin. He enables us to pray and, and teaches us to understand God's Word and to know Him more, God is still with us today, through His Holy Spirit. And as He calls us to be witnesses um, of Him, to the world around us, He has promised His presence with us. Matthew 20 verse28. The, the book end of, of, of this, uh, this, this book that we're reading today, Christ says, "I will be with you always." to the end of the age. What encouragement as we hold out the gospel to the world, as we evangelize and share of this good news, know that the Spirit empowers us to do so. And as we look forward to the end of the age, when Christ will truly reign over His people in His place fully, um, in His timing, we will be with Him um, face to face and we will see Him and know Him. Well, Matthew is, in, in some sense, jumping out of the pages here to point us to the beauty of God's Word that speaks in power to shape human history. I just want to take this brief aside also to to ask how are we treasuring up God's Word in our hearts as Mary did. I hope you see how we are not coming to Scripture alone. When we open God's Word, we join in with God's people through the ages to meet Christ, our Savior, that came to be God with us. How are we making time each day to hear from what He has to say to us? And now we turn to the last passage of the text today, verses 24 to 25. Trust and obey. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he responded to the angel's commands with trust and obedience. He did exactly as he was told. His obedience had three components. He took Mary as his wife. He did not have sexual relations with her till after the birth of Christ and as instructed, he called his name, Jesus. Obedience for him probably came at a cost. He would be forever known as Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born. Of course, a title of honor to those that believed in Christ, but probably not to those that did not know Christ. He would He would have to withhold and deny his own bodily pleasure to honor Christ, and he would have to name Jesus as he was told. But the greatest step of faith and obedience was to accept his role as the earthly father to the Savior of the world. Joseph obeyed each of these commands, knowing that his Savior King would ultimately be his salvation and also save the world from their sins. Friends, as I was thinking about where to inject personal anecdotes in this sermon, I found that I had none. Um, My life revolves around work and going home um, to care for the twins, uh, and I feel like I have nothing to share. I don't know if some of you feel like that today, that there's nothing significant in your life to share. But I'm encouraged by this text that calls us simply to trust and obey in the Savior that has come. How will you respond to Christ our Savior, divinely born to save, sufficient and effective, fully God, fully man, the Son of Mary? He is God with us. Will you will respond in trust and obedience, knowing that he is enough. I pray that we would cherish and enjoy simple trust and obedience in our Savior Christ.